Read to him the 29th scroll, 6th verse. Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn, alone among God's primates. He kills for sport, or lust, or greed. Yea, he will murder his brother to possess his brother's land. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. Shun him, drive him back into his jungle lair, for he is the harbinger of death. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast, Planet of the Apes Retrospective Series. My friends, I have convened this extraordinary meeting of the Council in order that I may report upon an action which I deemed necessary. Join Matt. You are a good and wise ape. Garrett. The human way is violence and death. And Adam. The only thing they fear more than me is you apes. As they travel through the spectrum of Earth and into the Forbidden Zone, and consequently dissect the most primitive of all film franchises. My God, did we finally do it. From the Charlton Heston starring 1968 original. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! To director Tim Burton's 2001 remake. We've been searching for you for so long. All the way through the latest entry, 2024's Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. I don't believe it! The man will see, the man will do their opinions of how good or inferior each movie in the series truly is. He has a definite gift for mimicry. All coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. All of human history has led to this moment. Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Released on June 13th, 1973, budget was $1.7 million, box office take of 8.8 this was directed for the second consecutive entry, only time in this franchise, by J. Lee Thompson, specifically the original franchise. All right, boys, we reached the end of the original Planet of the Apes franchise, and with a title like Battle for the Planet of the Apes, it certainly leads you to believe that this will be, the, as the poster promised, the final chapter. It's time to mention, if you're wondering why this one feels a little bit different and that'll certainly be a topic of conversation throughout this recording. New screenwriter, Paul Dean, was hired to write a treatment for this one, but his health was starting to become more complicated, so he did not write this one, after being the driving force behind a lot of these. So who do you call when your architect of this series, in so many ways, bows out? Well, are either of you familiar with the Corringtons? I am not. I looked them up. And they, you know, it's funny because Paul Dean didn't come in and he actually did write, do some rewrites and stuff on set and things. But this, you know what this reminded me of, boys? This reminded me last year when we covered Indiana Jones. George Lucas brought in that husband-wife team that also worked on Howard the Duck to work on that script. That's what that felt like when I saw that this was the team that came in. I mean, they did do the Omega Man. You are correct at the Omega Man. That was before this. They had also done Boxcar Bertha, as you mentioned, which is, yeah, they wrote a Martin Scorsese film, but even Scorsese's kind mm-hmm. of, you ask him to talk about that movie, he's kind of coy. Because that was the movie he basically made as his, and this is part of a group of his contemporaries, where they made films primarily sponsored by their early days of working with Roger Corman. It's kind of like Coppola's Dementia 13 is Boxcar Bertha to Scorsese. 
But yeah, this this husband and wife team came in. Dean, as you indicated, eventually came back in. Worth noting that they had not seen any of the Apes films prior to writing this. Jesus. That is a disclaimer right now, because that'll tie into the conversation. But they did rehire Dean to do a final polish. And if you listen to him through archived interviews and things of that nature, he claims to have rewritten about 90% of the dialogue and changed the ending. And but he still only gets a story credit. <laughs> WGA ruled in favor of the Corrington's for school, sole screenplay credit. Wow. Gotta love union corruption. Yeah. Yeah, Adam, you scream about that a lot, and God, it's in full display here. It's worth noting, much like Conquest, this one did have a lot of stuff that was left off the cutting room floor, and I'm not just talking about violence and brutality. It's a good 20 minutes that were removed. It's in the new box set. Everything from some opening credit changes to, as I mentioned, the ending. Some of these scenes were significantly longer. There's a couple of deleted scenes, so... Of the five, this is the one that has the most footage that's removed. And it kind of makes sense when you look at the finished product. You know what? It's funny you mention that. What what I got out of watching this was, like, I, I think they took a drubbing from critics and audiences alike for the violence that was in the last film. And we mentioned it, you know, in, in the end of that movie. It was a PG movie, but there, there was a lot of intensity going on there and some violence going on, and which they ended up cutting a little bit of, out of anyway. It, it felt to me like they took that and they were like, okay, well, let's just make a more child-friendly film. Let's make a film that's more geared towards children and kind of keep those people off our backs. Did you guys get that feeling at all? I don't know if I got that one. I did feel that it was, I don't know, maybe a little more. We discussed that some of them, you know, really pushed the ratings limit for what it could have been. So, yeah, I could see that because how do you continue to escalate and not delve into a rating that's going to limit your box office? So I guess that's there. But I don't see that this is less heady as some of them because I do think there is some thoughtfulness that goes throughout the story that's at play. Funny Adam mentioned that because you mentioned, Garrett, the lack of violence, certainly of a graphic sort. I look at the more childlike thing as far as what the movie is saying thematically. I think in comparison to all the previous entries, this one is the most simplistic. Yeah, this is simplistic to the point where it actually felt like the pilot to a TV series. Which I know they well, were working on at that time too. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, very, and, the very next year, yeah, the mm-hmm. TV series started. So Apes was not dormant for the 30 years that people think of because it took that long for the the franchise to be rebooted. There were certainly things in the interim. But yeah, this was the final entry and, you know, it made money, but reviews were not favorable in the slightest. And a lot of people really took it to task for being overly simplified, and some would even argue a cash grab. Some people even called it boring for a movie that's 86 minutes long. I don't know a lot of people who hold this as their favorite entry in the series, but who knows, maybe one of them will be on this podcast. Who knows? Uh, One thing I noticed, too, and I don't know if you guys caught him, but there is a John Landis cameo here uh he's one of the humans in the background in one of these scenes so yeah he he was a part of this series as well which i had no idea about oh wow Mm -hmm. so boy can you miss it yeah like dominic west in phantom menace like oh yeah Yeah. he's there if you pay attention (laughs) if you possibly you have to freeze it in order to to see it but 
I don't even think we mentioned that in that podcast either. <laughs> no, I, I might have. But, you know, speaking mm. of things worth mentioning, let's dive into this final chapter as the poster. I mean, say what you want about the movie. It's got a great poster. Yeah, the posters yeah. kick ass. It, it, it almost has, who was it? I think it was author P. Jacobs who mentioned that he always wanted to make a King Kong. He wanted to make a King Kong movie, and the, the poster definitely reminds you of that. Well, the movie does not start like that because we start off mm-hmm. with going back to formula in a lot of ways, to quote Spider-Man, where we are actually having, since Conquest did not do this, we are doing the recap of previous installments. For two reasons. One, to bring this full circle because it's the final entry in the series. And two, to bulk up the runtime to feature length. Yes. <laughs> because they use entire sequences from mostly Escape from the Planet of the Apes. They replay basically the last two minutes of the movie, accompanied by monologuing from a lawgiver who is played by director, actor, auteur John Huston. Is that who that was? Yes. Holy shit. Wow. I guess you can't, you can't really tell it's him unless you're familiar with his voice because of everybody, his makeup is the most serviceable. Yeah, the makeup here is pretty bad. We keep mentioning it. For some reason, these movies keep making money, but they just keep going more and more on the cheap with them. And I felt it here. One, I think the cinematography in this is terrible. Some of these scenes are so fucking dark. It reminded me of watching goddamn Alien vs. Predator Requiem all over again, where there's just some scenes where you just don't see the apes unless they talk and you can't even see their mouths. And the the apes in this also... You know what I got a feeling of, guys, when I was watching this? I, I was taken back to the second Ewok film with those marauders those big ass freaking marauders and the way they talk and everything i, I felt that way with this again Ugh, not a good way to start i was just thrown off because you know we're getting the voiceover we're getting the recap of flashback of the third film of the fourth film and i just don't know exactly where this one is being set and throughout a lot of this film i actually have trouble trying to determine where this one fits in the timeline of everything they give us an answer but I think there's a lot of contradiction that happens and a lot of stuff that kind of negates or ignores um, some of the mythology that had been built up for the four films before. Yeah, and, right? and that has a lot to do with the people coming in and writing this and not even seeing the previous ones. Why would you bring people in who have not even seen the goddamn previous movies to do this? That, that makes no sense to me. It both undermines the previous installments because we find out it's 2670 AD when we see where this movie is depicted, which puts this over 600 years since the previous film. Two problems. Number one, if you know the previous entries, you have to know the specific time period because it doesn't quite align. And number two, for 600 years, I guess apes don't age? Or, or, they, age, or yes. they age like Yoda? Or they age like Yoda? <laughs> Because we need a character who is a brother of someone from the previous movie, but if you do the timeline, he should be like a great, 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 (laughs) ten times removed grandson. Yes. You could say ancestor, but to say that he's a son is... (laughs) No. I mean, look, it's very easy to... I mean, CinemaSins has made this notorious for nitpicking movies, but this is a tremendous error when you look at continuity. And it's like, really... Ape society, like, society really has not evolved that much in 600 years. Like, if you told me this was 10 years later, or something, even, like, the furthest I would go was 20. But, mm-hmm. right away, this is where you can tell the disconnect with this writer, this writing team from the previously established pen of Paul Dean. 
It's funny you mention Ewoks, because this shit looks like Caravan of Courage when we cut to the Ape Society, <laughs> where it's kind of a... It's harmonious slavery is the best way I'll describe it, mm. where humans are treated fairly as far as not being whipped every five seconds, but they're resorted to doing physical labor, like they're doing the commerce and the farming and things of that nature. But Caesar's still in charge. We find out that there has indeed been a nuclear war that has destroyed civilization as we know it, so that's kind of come to pass. But, you know, for something 600 years later, you don't really see a whole lot of effects to the radiation, and everyone here seems just fine. How long do they think apes live? It's so it's enraging. It, because I'm looking going, okay, so this is like 20 years later, but it's only one area. It I, it just doesn't jive. No. And it's this one little, I don't know, it, it, like, is this the apex of ape civilization, just this one little colony? Because they talk about how nuclear war has destroyed human civilization. Does that mean there are outposts like this across the world? Or are we led to believe that this is the only, like, group of apes that have risen to power either way it, it's not very satisfying yeah that's the big issue right is that what what are we supposed to believe like is this all across the world or is it just this one part of civilization it, they, they never ever tell us they tell us where we are in this timeline like they give us that answer but again it just doesn't make any sense how old is caesar how old are these apes the ancestors everything is so fucking jumbled and it's lazy it is lazy writing the only people who aren't lazy in this movie are the humans, because they do all the work. <laughs> well, I'm going to... All right. I have a lot of bad things to say about this movie, but one thing I'm still going to say is that I still think Roddy McDowell is doing his best here. I think he is still tremendous in this role. Now, he doesn't have too much to work with here. He doesn't have too much when it comes to society, societal issues and everything that he had going on in the previous films, but I still think he's giving a very empathetic performance, and I, I, I hate the fact that this is his swan song, at least in cinema. Other than that, you're right. There's nobody who really came to play here. Even we, we get a, a villain that we're going to be here, and I know I'm jumping all over the place, but we get a villain who's terribly done like just so fucking cut and dry and it's an issue that that we talk about so many times when we talk about these franchises guys where it's just it's just lazy this is the in a lot of ways this franchise bears a lot of cinematic blood to star trek this is the final frontier not just because it's the fifth movie but the, the dip in quality is apparent from even a technical standpoint because once you see the apes you got a big group shot of them at school where they're there's a human teacher that's teaching apes about, like, society is teaching them handwriting, but there's more latex in this movie than what was left in Joan Rivers' will. <laughs> nice line. This is the one where the masks are the most mm. apparent and the least expressive. Yep. And you know what? They did a decent job of hiding it before we've talked about that, but they, they don't do a good job of hiding it here. It's really, really just... Bad. Like I mentioned, it just all feels like a TV pilot, all the way down to the budget. You know, this is something that you would see in like the Incredible Hulk TV show that would come out a few years later, you know, where they just they really, really dumb down the budget and they, they narrow everything down to this is an obvious cash grab. And by comparison to the last film, which used primarily limited locations, but because those those buildings were so new at the time, you could get away with shooting them in different ways. This one, it's like they had a plot of land at a state park for everything with the Ape Society. They went to Spirit Halloween to get some decorations and these ape masks, for all we know. And then we cut to the Human Society. They just went to a, uh, a carpenter, put up pieces of wood, 
and some plaster to make that set. Like, this one is so shoddy, it almost feels like one of those movies that was made to capitalize off of Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Like, this feels like they could have called it, like, Colony of the Chimpanzees or something, because it feels like a feels like a knockoff of the original series. We're introduced to Caesar's son, Cornelius. Nice little nod there to the previous yeah. lineage. We're introduced to General Aldo, who is the, the villain of this movie, and quite frankly, not only did Garrett mention he's black and white, He's also incredibly stupid yes. when you look at how he how he executes this plan and the, the mistakes he makes. It really goes to show that I guess it was right that the that the gorillas are the military in the future because they're all really dumb. <laughs> so I felt that was completely intentional. That they are nothing but muscle bound apes that have nothing but brute force and stupidity behind them. I was so breathless watching the end of the last film and a lot of the scenes in the previous films. They have done such a good job with alluding to what's going on in society. Here, this is so cut and dry. This movie has nothing to say. When you have villains like this, you are already showing your hand that, all right, well, we're just going through the motions here. This this villain has no gray areas, you know, and as Matt mentioned, he is dumb as hell. How can somebody see this as formidable? You know, how can somebody see this as a threat as opposed to what Caesar has already been through? It, it, it's terribly done. There are parts that I do like about this movie. I don't want to say it's all bad. You know, Rodney McDowell, whatnot. But in the beginning stages, I, I am not getting a good feeling of what I'm about ready to see. We get that they're teaching him how to write, and he accidentally utters the word no, which is like saying the N-word, I guess. Because <laughs> like everyone just rejects in horror because it's, uh, it's the word that Caesar has forbidden because it harkens back to the time where they were oppressed. We had a chase scene that really does nothing for me. You know, you're really starting to see a dip in quality mm. with, with even some of the, the shot compositions. We see Caesar, who is still in charge, but there's some potential insurrection with Aldo on the horizon. And Caesar wonders if his own parents could have taught him how to make things better. You know, Matt, later on this year, we are going to be covering Mad Max. Did you get any Mad Max vibes while watching this? I kind of did. Not really. Like with the human army and everything else, you didn't really, you didn't feel that. I kind of did those early Mad Max films. I, I guess it's it's close to the first Mad Max as far as society has not yet fully collapsed. Yeah, there's still some aspects of technology which we'll talk about later with the humans. I, I guess that the one prop they spent a lot of money on was that school bus that we'll see later yeah. on. Yeah, that's where a chunk of the budget was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of the things that happens here when. The- you know, we start having the discussions and things like that, and we get all the different, you know, we're seeing the different types of apes again, which we saw previously. But there's a discussion about timelines and going back in time, like a multiverse concept in this film, which blew me away. But I'm waiting for the rest of this film for that multiversal adjustment of reality to come into play. Because it's set up here with, let's just call him not Dr. Zayas, talking about, you know, <laughs> do you go back in time and adjust when you realize that you failed at something and then go into the future and adjust your... So I think they're setting up why this timeline doesn't match up with what we've seen before. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be a smart way that they do it. They've found a way to retcon by bringing in the multiverse to this all. Well, that's not what they do, because the ending of this movie is more ambiguity than it is a new timeline. But yeah, I'm surprised you didn't put the rainbow connection together because that ape is played by Paul Williams. Yes, I saw that. 
his first movie as an actor. I mean, before this, he was known for songwriting predominantly, and you know, the Muppets were coming up a little bit later. Phantom of the Paradise is a couple years after this, and I cannot hear that voice without freaking hearing the Penguin from Batman the Animated Series. And quite frankly, he's the only other person in this movie who's actually trying. Really? You don't think McDowell's trying here? Aside from Rodney okay. McDowell. Because he's sort of the brains of this stuff. Yeah, as Adam mentioned, he's talking about time being like infinite branches and a couple other things. Which, by the way, having just seen Madam Web and all these multiverse movies, I am so done with hearing this shit. Like, I, I check out faster than these screenwriters did when they cashed the check. <laughs> We're also introduced to another McDonald, who I thought was the same guy. They were going to say he's the same character, but I'm like, it can't be because it's so far in the future. But I guess radiation has made has slowed down the human aging process because he's only his younger brother. And that's why, like, I missed how long this was supposed to be because I'm like, okay, we're we're 16 to 30 years removed is where I think we are. And it, oh, no. Add a, yeah, add a couple zeros. <laughs> which, the, which they really should have done to the budget of this movie because it feels so fucking shoddy. They have to go to the the Forbidden City, which, you know, ties back to the first film, the second one. So, mm-hmm. that's the question. Is this the same trajectory? Like, is this a prequel to the original film? Like, much like a lot of other franchises, when you try to think about this, mapping it out, it makes your head spin. Well, that's the problem with what they did in the third and fourth film, right? Because in the third and fourth film, we're, we're getting time travel and whatnot. In the second film, too, we're getting time travel and everything else, and everything's so jumbled up. Well, by the time you get to this movie, by the time we're at the fifth movie, and you have two people who don't know what the fuck they're doing when they're writing the screenplay, everything gets so jumbled up. And as opposed to feeling like the well-constructed piece that the, the previous films were, this one just feels like a jumbled mess because they don't know how to weave these baskets they don't know how to complete them they know how to outline the story they know how to put a battle on screen but they do not know how to weave the story like what was so well done in those previous films there's a very strong chance that there's archived footage that has survived but they have to trek into the radioactive territory so they go see mandamus who is the Yoda of this movie because he talks in cryptic nonsense. Yes. <laughs> it, this reminded me of, you know that scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail when they go to the bridge? <laughs> and that guy, that, the guy, the, Terry, the guy that Terry Gilliam plays, asks them all the riddles. Yeah. That's kind of mm-hmm. what this is. Mm-hmm. I wanted Caesar to just say, open the fucking door, please. For 600 years, we're still using M1911s and submachine guns. So, I guess they... Gunpowder is still a thing, apparently, and these guns haven't rusted or anything. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, they get their weapons, and the three of them trek into the Forbidden City, where they try to use some shots that echo the astronauts traveling the desert in the first film. But when there's no... There's no grandeur to these, or, or real sense of foreboding danger, it just feels... We're trying to pay homage, but instead we're just rehashing. That's exactly it. You're rehashing in the guise of paying homage. This director, I know last week he really wanted to bring what he brought last week. I don't know why he would come back to a script like this and do a script like this. I do know he was very unhappy with the result of it. He was probably in a position where he wanted to do something and he kept getting told, no, you can't. No, you can't. We don't have the money for it. We don't have the money for it. So this is what he settled on. And as you mentioned, the rehashes and everything else, future franchises would have 
would do this exact same mistake. Cinema does not learn from their mistakes because we're still seeing this done to this day. Now, I will mention there is a deleted scene that really highlights that this is the same timeline from the previous films. So it kind of does make our previous conversation moot, but not really because it didn't make the final cut. They enter the Forbidden City, which every time I say that, I feel like we should be talking about like a Jim Henson movie yes. <laughs> or, or something like that. Some Indiana Jones video game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you talk about out of ideas. We get mutated humans once again, led by one of the villains from the previous movie. Jesus. They are out of ideas. Yep. And they're not yet fully deformed. They've just got some, like, scar tissue and some bad costuming. It's not even uniform like it was in Beneath the Planet of the Apes, where they all look very much the same. There, there's too many, too many continuity mistakes with how everyone is supposed to be depicted. Mm-hmm. Yep, but I can see that these humans that we have and these condoms that they got over the tops of their head, I, I, I get who they're supposed to be. Like, I understand that, you know, this is where we get those horrible mutants from, but it's it's awkwardly done at best. At best. As they make their way through, they find footage of Zero and Cornelius, although it, you can tell it's been augmented by whatever humans there were because it's just a headshot with audio playing over it from the previous movies. <laughs> They're spotted on camera, and the humans order to go hunt them down because they realize it's Caesar, which makes you think, what the hell have they been doing for 600 years? Like, and they don't explain, like, can they go outside? Like, how, how have they lived underground for so long? Like, this movie is so tactile, it, it might as well be something you could buy at Home Depot. Like, it's, it's like you buy a starter kit, but you have to buy all the DLC later. Yeah, like, why are they all of a sudden underground? How long have they been here? Like, it just doesn't feel so tightly woven like those previous ones were. I, I keep saying that, but my God, I was just so annoyed watching this movie. Instead of recapping previous film, you know, for as long as they did, it would have behooved them to just maybe do a montage of setting up the how and why we're in the place that we are now. You know, you could have had five to ten minutes of showing a couple decades of evolution and de-evolution. But you know, this isn't intrinsic to this film. This is the prequel. This is the midquel fucking Rob. Hey, Star Wars, this is... You didn't do this any better. Like, this is that type of, of problem. You know, somebody else comes in, they want to tell a story, and people want an original story, but you have to ignore or completely forget the stuff that happened before, or you're just a slave to it. No pun intended. With yeah, I was, was going to say, nice. Yeah, and it mentioned Star Wars because there's freaking Jedi Council meetings in this movie. <laughs> like, they, they might, might as well be on freaking, they might as well be on Endor. For all, for all we know, like this, this production feels like a made for t one of those made for TV Ewok movies in yeah. comparison to yeah. previous entries. Yeah, that's the exact comparison I made at the beginning of this podcast. That's all I thought of. I thought of those Marauders every time Aldo uttered uh, uttered a um, something he was going to do. You know, it just it doesn't have the gray areas that those films did so well. The makeup's failing everybody. Like everything about this boys is just less than what we've seen previous. But we're, we're still a ways off, you know, because this movie feels like there's another three hours left to go. Uh, it's like freaking 85 minutes. This is an 85-minute movie, boys. And you know what? <laughs> we're going to be doing a lot of night shift coming up. And 
this drags more than those movies do. Like it was really tough getting through this. I gotta say, you know, there there's times with these with these Jedi Council meetings and things, as you mentioned, Matt, that it does feel like it's really, really going through the mud here. I actually found it incredibly breezy. Given the parts that I had problems with, really? given the stuff that I'm like, oh, I wish I wish this was done different. I'm never angered at it. And I'm like, okay, I could see why. I could see this. I could see that. And I'm just like, I'm okay with it. And I don't feel it a major... Like, I see differences. I see lessers. But I don't see it as a major departure. Wow. Here comes that best of the series thing I alluded to earlier. <laughs> That's going to show up later on. <laughs> Who knows? We still got time. Remember, this movie's called Battle of the Planet of the Apes. So you think there's going to be a full-scale war coming up. Yeah. I kept waiting for it. Because that's what Caesar proclaims when he returns. He says that, you know, the mutant humans could attack us at any moment, and everyone flips out because he left a couple humans in. Even though the humans have shown no signs of rebellion or plans to do an uprising of their own, in fact, one of them is Caesar's right-hand man, nevertheless, Aldo takes the gorillas and says, for you guys, I'm going home. <sighs> Eventually, the scouts find Ape City, and Governor Culp declares war, despite his... I don't know, second-in-command, saying, you don't think this is a bad idea? They kind of kicked our ass last time, and we had more weapons back then. Yeah, I was going to say, they had more weapons. Nobody sees the the problems with what they're, what they're trying to do here? At the same time, this is happening, you know, because this is a movie chock full of uh, contrived. It's the three Cs. It's contrived, it's convoluted, and it's convenient. Like, it, it makes all three C mistakes where Colt says, all right, we're, we're just going to take over because we need to fight against the humans, which Caesar has already given evidence. Why don't you as Aldo just say, hey, what can I do if they do show up? You know, put me in charge if that happens. But nevertheless, he's like, all right, I'm just going to usurp him even though everyone would turn against me. And Caesar's son overhears this coup because they're doing this over a campfire out in public. All it takes is someone walking over to hear them. Which Cornelius ultimately does, and he hacks off the tree branch, so the kid w gets wounded and eventually dies. Why did you think this would work? <sighs> it makes them look so stupid. Especially because Virgil's like, yeah, this, this tree wasn't broken by weight, it was cut by a blade. Yeah. I like that, you know, in the, in the original films, we see that there are different classes to the ape chimpanzee society. I'm liking that we are seeing those differences in full display here. You're, you're seeing them, but I, I still think, you know, while the gorillas are certainly the muscle in the other films, like the second one in particular is where they're more at the forefront, that general was a lot more logical with his thinking than this one is. Oh, this one is that dumb, dirty ape. What's <laughs> about it? And, and it also feels jarring whenever they cut from the apes to this ragtag group of humans because it feels like they're so far away, but it takes them, like, five minutes to walk over, I guess, in real time. Mm -hmm. Which makes you wonder how in 600 years they haven't encountered this camp that's just over the ridge. Yeah, you think somebody would have figured it out. So Cornelius eventually dies, and Caesar basically realizes that this is where Roddy McDowell starts to phone it in. Because mm -hmm. has to play it very downtrodden and doesn't know what he's thinking, but... It's only here to contrive a way for him to be temporarily usurped, as I mentioned. 
the fridge Cornelius, but I mean to have something happen to show the split, and I mean we got to have that intelligent versus religion versus military complex version of the apes. And I'll say Cornelius dying here, it got to me. You know, I felt for for Caesar and Lisa. He's the only one. Yeah, I was just, <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. Like I I wanted to Adam. I really did. I wanted to. I knew this was the end. I wanted to feel the conclusion and everything, but I couldn't. I, I, I was not into this just because of how poor the writing is and acting for oh. the most part. Yeah, and the humans finally show up, and they should have called this movie Skirmish of the Planet of the Apes because <laughs> it's, really, it's really not a battle. No. I mean, they really should have called this Recession of the Planet of the Apes because there's no money to be found. <laughs> Anywhere. <laughs> I think everything they used for this battle is whatever was left over at this abandoned park, and it got repurposed for this quote-unquote battle of this film. <laughs> uh, like they, there was an elementary school field trip, and they hijacked the bus so they could just use it in some of these shots. But yeah, this this is like freaking battle battle for Endor yep, without yep, the Mac yep. opponents. Yep. I do like that they they outsmart the humans, which is not hard to do in, in this movie by any stretch of just playing dead at the villain the villain monologues yeah instead of instead of just shooting caesar like i thought these movies were smarter than that mm-hmm, me too uh, monologuing. this one's certainly not it shows though how much i don't think they had a feature-length script going into this because we spent so much time at the beginning rehashing what came before which was important in the 70s because you didn't have a home video but the length of this battle shot from different angles. The amount of times that we see, like, five people in a truck rolling across the screen yes. is is interminable. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, did we just get five minutes of a bus? Did we just get... I mean, Christopher Nolan would say, holy shit, this is slow and ponderous. <laughs> like, this just... <laughs> you're welcome, that's for you. <laughs> but it's... I mean, you got one open field, and you just keep having them march back and forth and back and forth to, I guess, pump up the runtime. But the problem is there's no excitement in the battle. And the title of this film is Battle for the Planet of the Apes. We should be at war here. Mm-hmm. Oh, that comes later. Yeah. <laughs> Considerably later. Yes. <laughs> and, and you could argue even those movies are mistitled, which we'll talk about down the road. But the apes, they all rise up like the Undertaker and just shoot everyone down. <laughs> You know, all, all Caesar needed to do was lift his urn. <laughs> but the apes win the day, but the movie's not yet over, surprisingly, because Aldo says we need to just keep all the humans corralled, and they capture, like, a couple prisoners, and he orders the gorillas to just shoot them all, but Caesar puts himself in front of the humans, and rather than just shoot him, which these gorillas seem more than okay with doing. We get the big reveal that killed not by clones was this Padawan, but by a sword. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the last movie used the word no a lot. This one says ape shall never kill ape. And this is where you could tell they really ran out of money because they just have Aldo climb a tree and he falls and dies. Some way to take out your belly. Climbs a tree that's five feet from the ground. That's a good trickery. Yeah, yeah, they they use some some angles to make it look taller, and that they just they didn't have enough money to throw the dummy off the side of a cliff. God damn! So you, like, even if revenge is you don't like this, Garrett, this ending. No, with Aldo and Caesar. Oh. No, you don't. I do, this is not the way you do in your 
your antagonist throughout the entire film. And I, I didn't like the way it's just, I'm waiting for the battle and I'm getting, like you mentioned, Matt, you, I'm getting a skirmish. What I like here at the end is I'm finally getting a message like every, of every one of these movies have had. And it's what, what's the allegory? And, it, and I'm finally getting it here in the end. I mean, this entire film, I've been distracted by all those freaking white face poking through <laughs> the ape mask, like it's freaking Michael Keaton, Batman's white eyes behind the mask. But it's when we get Caesar and him chasing him up, up the tree, we literally have a capital punishment allegory here. And I am in for this. Is that you what know, they're trying it, to do it, here? I didn't get that. Is it okay to kill him because he killed his kid? This is capital punishment. Okay. And as somebody who has strong opinions on it, I am a big fan. Uh, I mean, as as inconsistent and as cheap as this film has been, that we finally, at least in the last few minutes, have decided that we're going to have an ape discussion on capital punishment, I am very happy that we found our political point to this one. Hmm. So I don't feel it's a discussion because this death, you could argue, in a court is accidental. (laughs) True. But would he have done it? And would he have been justified? And would the rest of the, would society have decided that capital punishment is okay? Well, if that's the case, they should have depicted that, because as it stands, it feels very anticlimactic. That's how I felt, too. Caesar now realizing the apes are no different than who they used to be oppressed by. He agrees to McDonald's plea. The humans are finally treated as equals. So, I guess no more slavery. I mean, the apes might as well have freaking Care Bear symbols with how, pre- <laughs> with, how pre- with how preachy this e- how preachy this ending is, where they put their guns away, and he's like, "We shall hope for the day where we no longer need them." Like this, this feels like an '80s PSA. Let alone the other movies had a lot more teeth than this one does. Yeah, was the cartoon already on at this point? Or no? I don't think. So. No. I mean, th- th- that's what I thought of. I thought of like a Saturday morning cartoon, you know, when G.I. Joe comes on at the end and he tells you, no, kid, put the cigarette away. Go, Joe. Like, I was going to say the, the G.I. Joe yeah. thing. Every cartoon had to have an EQ, an educational mm-hmm. quotient that was required. And yeah, that does feel like what you have here at the end. Yeah. And the movie goes full circle, returning back to John Houston, who I think they had to, like, wake up off his couch. He's <laughs> like, oh, that's right, I have one more scene. And he mentions that it's been 600 years since Caesar died. So this is 1,200 years, then, from where the previous movie ended, if you're trying to do the math. They should have been teaching mathematics instead of handwriting at the uh, school, apparently. <sighs> and we, cut, we see that there's a group of humans and apes quote-unquote harmonious, and he says that society still waits for a day where the world will no longer need weapons. So, there have been additional conflicts, then, in the 600 years since Caesar died. Now, did they... I, I, I just wonder, did they actually have plans to do that? Or I mean, I know Arthur P. Jacobs, he died, what, like, a month after this movie came out or something like that. I think this is what killed him. <laughs> there you go. But were there plans to, you know, show those battles of how we actually got here? Or was this just something to just kind of wrap it up and, all right, we're done here? All right, so here's where there are some omissions. Okay. Number one, the... Scene where everyone in the school bus gets shot was in the original cut, but they axed that. There was actually a fight between Aldo and Caesar that was cut. Oh, you need that. Yeah, and the movie ends with the new governor of Mendez being put in place, and you see that it's the Alpha Omega bomb from beneath. Oh, fuck. See, you need that stuff. Yeah, like, all all the vital stuff was removed. Yes! 
but the, the there's a close up of a statue of Caesar with a somehow it cries. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, like this is I I I forgot this and I laughed. This I laughed very hard. Apparently, one of the screenwriters she really really hated this. And I'm like, wait a second, honey. The hour and twenty minutes before this you like, but this you fucking rebel against this crying statue. I know it's supposed to you know make you feel something, but by this point I wasn't feeling anything. I'm surprised it didn't go full religious allegory and give it stigmata symbols, you know, start bleeding out of the hands. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and after five movies in five years, 68 to 73. Wow. The original series ends with a tear. I think that's how a lot of fans felt when this movie ended. They're like, wow, this is, so So this is how Liberty dies. With no applause. <laughs> that does it for Battle for the Planet of the Apes. On a scale of 1 to 10, what do we give this fifth and ultimate installment of this franchise? Let's get some positivity out of the way first to go to Adam. <laughs> you know, it's. I was kind of sad that we were going to come to the end of this original Apes, you know, series that we have. Um, this, this pentagon of films that we've gone through here, these five, because they were new watches for me completely, and I know for at least one other on this podcast, and... And I'm really glad we sat and, and went through it. And I was like, man, I, I can't wait to see how they wrap up this because I kept expecting a decline in quality and I didn't feel like we got it. We got a little bit, but not the massive drop off. This one, it drops off a decent amount. You know, it's clear that the effort in doing the makeup is substandard compared to the other films. Not on everybody. You know, I think Caesar still looks really, really it comes to the apes themselves. I just don't think that they have any effort in trying to blend the black of the mask with whatever skin tone is behind it. But other than that, I think the other apes actually look pretty good. The human connection is to try to tie it in, but is so not fully fleshed out. You know what? When you pump one of these out a year, suddenly we're into the fifth Saw film, and yeah, let's remember how the, some of those went, because that's what I'm starting to feel. But then when it comes to something, when you call a film the battle of the Planet of the Apes, and we know there's a major battle that that occurs, you set us up for something that just doesn't exist. You don't have that big, bombastic battle you don't even really see humanity destroy itself, which was the big crux of that original film. We blew it up. We destroyed ourselves. And then apes evolved to be the primary species. But that's not the trajectory that this film has said that this now is gone. So there's a big disconnect that way. But Roddy McDowell still brings it, and I enjoy what he brings of this a lot. I like seeing the differences between the differences in the ape society. I see why they got fractured. I see the science. I see the religion. And I see the military. And I think those are huge discussions to be had in science fiction because I think it's so important in today's day and age. And I appreciate, admire, and will always have the discussion and argument when it comes to capital punishment and the death penalty. So to wrap it up that way was fulfilling for me. Uh, as somebody who's just, I, I want those discussions. But it doesn't rise to the level of so many of the other films. It doesn't make you feel like you sat through a smart sci-fi film. It just feels like they took what was left over, it took the scraps, put it on the film, and did the best they could do. And the best they could do, it's better than the second one. And it might even be better than Conquest, but it's definitely not better... Than Escape, it's definitely not better than the first one. I'm going to give it a six. 
I didn't hate it. Like, I had a decent time with most of it, even though I can fully acknowledge just how how much cheaper it feels than almost every other film that came in the series. But 6 on 10, I think it's a conclusion that you can't really miss if you watch the other four. All right, Garrett, speaking of capital punishment, are we going with stoning or firing squad for Adam giving us a six? <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> uh, nevertheless, the floor is yours. A small drop-off. I felt like Nazis at the end of the truck chase in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark by the end of this. This thing goes way off a cliff. I- I'll agree with Adam on this much. I am so happy that I went through these five films. You know, I have this podcast and Matt to thank for that. And I cannot be more pleasantly surprised than I was going through these movies because I kept expecting something like this. You know, I kept expecting something where I'm just like, okay, well, this is going through the motions. It's just going to be one of those science fiction movies that's not really heady. And we're just going to see a bunch of people in bad makeup by the end doing battles and things. And I was afraid of this. Of this movie, uh, what what good can I say? I will say McDowell is still trying in most parts of this film, but you know what? The makeup artists—they're not trying. There are times when in previous films where they blacked up the eyes so that the eye holes still look good and the mouths move moved okay. They were never perfect, but they moved okay. They don't even darken up their eyes in this. You can see the skin around their eyes if you look at those masks in this movie. The mouths don't even move hardly in this. Uh, the cinematographer he didn't care either this movie in parts is just so goddamn dark as i mentioned aldo is a bad villain this is what i was afraid of i was afraid of a movie that really had nothing to say this movie has nothing to say and you know what i'm one of those people who i hate when films get preachy you know there there are times in science fiction where they get too heady and they get too into their own way and they try preaching to us but what planet of the apes did so well was disguise it in the form of science fiction that was enjoyable. Whether it was a Charlton Heston performance, whether it was uh, somebody like Roddy McDowell in the third film giving the performance that he's giving. I felt every single thing that they were trying to tell me in those previous films. And this one is not trying to tell me anything. It's going through the motions. And I still say to this day that this was just a fucking pilot for a TV show that was failed within the first season anyway. I do still have goodwill for this series, though, and for that reason, I will go ahead and just give it one lesson I've given the least that i given previously. The second film, I gave a five. I'm going to go ahead and give this one a patented four. I, I do think there is stuff being done here that I enjoy, but not much. This was a pretty bad watch, and Matt, you mentioned before that, you know, when we did the first podcast, you mentioned that there were times right after the fifth film that there were drive-ins that were showing all five of them in a marathon and if i were to go to one of those in the 70s i would see the first four and by the time that this one was starting i was like you know what i'm kind of tired i'll just go ahead and go home so yeah four out of ten for battle of the planet of the apes the fifth and final of the 70s series that i am still very happy that i went through so i have to begin my comments by saying i just picked my job off the floor when the completionist said he would not stay for the marathon <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're going to be fighting really soon over that one, sir. Yeah. Um, so be that as it may, the biggest compliment I can give this franchise is it only took only, is not the right word, it took five entries to get something I would consider to be a bad one. Typically, in a lot of franchises, you get one significantly earlier than the fifth installment. So I think that speaks of my goodwill of, of this original franchise as a whole. But sadly, it doesn't fully carry over into this film as I 
have mentioned previously, the thing that hurts this the most is the change in the writing process. When you bring in people who don't love or let alone understand the previous movies and come with something that feels very slapdashed and more of a, of a sales quota for a movie to be released than something that feels inspired, you're going to get a lesser product. But I mentioned Final Frontier. It's nowhere near as bad as that. You know, there's no Shatner directorial ego trip behind this movie. But it's kind of sad to watch because I do, I do hold the other four films in this franchise in pretty high esteem as a collective. Even the one that I view as the weakest, I would still put well above this because it's got, it's got balls and it's got some ingenuity to it despite uh, Beneath's issues. So I do think this is the, the weakest one by a significant margin, and I'll keep the falling allegory. This is like Hans Gruber falling off the Nakatomi Plaza Tower for me. This is a huge step down, and it's kind of a, it's kind of sad to watch because it's such a big step down for me in comparison to the other ones. I'm much like Garrett. Yeah, it's there because it's part of the box set, but I, I never in all likelihood going to revisit this one. So, as much as I want to give it, like, a, a tremendously low score, there is a part of me that realizes, you know, it's 85 minutes, and it's got an actor who's trying his damnedest with stuff that's not there. So, I'll be nice, much like Caesar in the previous film, show some compassion, and give this a 4 on 10. So, there it is. for the two of you who have done first-time watches of this series after years of me trying to find an appropriate spot to put it in. What is your overall thoughts on this franchise, and are you happy that you've watched them for the first time? Oh, I believe I already answered that. I, I am extremely happy to finally get the wherewithal to actually sit and watch these movies. I, it, it's one of those things where it's always been there. It's been in my family. Like I mentioned, my dad used to watch them when I was a kid. And then when this new series came out, I didn't really have any inkling to go back to the previous series. For some reason, it just never occurred to me to watch these. And so the fact that we did for this podcast, I'm really happy because there are so many things in the series that I would never have even guessed. There are times when it went way out there, like I mentioned in, in the second podcast we did. I am very, very happy to have gone through it. And overall, it was a pretty good, it was a pretty decent experience. I think if you average out my scores, it's probably about, I don't know, six and a half, maybe seven. This was a fun journey to go on for sure. Yeah, I agree. You know, never seeing them all. I've seen the Tim Burton one and only seeing the, the Franco one of the new ones. You know, this is a complete just hole in my sci-fi and 70s cinema. I don't think I would have watched it other than this, and I'm so glad I did. You know what? TBS, TNT, all these, USA, they love to run marathons of so much crap, you know, kind of nonstop anymore. Put these on over the course of, you know, weekends. You know, this is a great background watch if you want to freaking put all five movies and just binge them. You know, there's some good, heady, thoughtful stuff here, especially for 70s, and the only thing that makes me worry is going to the future, <laughs> that, you know, I worry a little bit that the next sets of these are going to be more flash than substance. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But these things tackled societal issues that I don't know if we'd have the balls to do nowadays. You know, we talked about on our Q&A show, like, top ten franchises for us, and I think having done this in the format that we do our podcast in, 
I'd have to consider putting this in my top ten, like, independent of how I feel about the other films that we're going to talk about, because we're only a little over halfway. But I think there is something to be said for this franchise that really took science fiction on cinemas into a into a stratosphere it really had not been. It's sort of, you know, as Adam mentioned, the social statements it was talking about, the, the world building, and just the variety. Like, you cannot say they made the same movie twice. Even this one, which really was a hodgepodge, still, you could argue, is not a, a straight-up remake, per se. Although, parts of it are border on it. But, you know, they're all, they all offer something different in tone, in messaging, in what, it's, in what they're saying. And I think there's something to be said for that, for something that's got a pretty high batting average. I mean, look, talk about something that was made in the late 60s and early 70s to still have the longevity it does and still hold up. Not just in a technical sense, but in a in an allegorical sense. I think there's something to be said for that. And look, a lot of franchise like using Night of the Living Dead as an example, Garrett, which I know you had talked about previously. Yeah, those early films are great, but you, unfortunately, you have to include stuff like Diary of the Dead and Day of the Dead that kind of hurts the overall product. Survival. Oof. Not Day of the Dead. What's the what was the one with uh, Dennis Hopper? Land of the Dead. That's Land. Yeah, Land of the Dead. You know, you have to include it, whereas this original series, you can put it in your favorite franchises separately from the reboots. And even in that, I'd I'd strongly consider putting this in the same breath as I do, like, the original six Star Trek films. It's kind of Mm. of similar quality, which we'll talk about next year, how I feel about those particular installments. That one's got one extra one. But still, I think this, this has a has a worthwhile legacy that I think is still being overlooked and underappreciated. Yeah, that's a good point. So, especially when you got to look at that there, five films, five years. You know, there was not a year that they took a that they took a break. And you could argue maybe they should have. Maybe if they took two years in between, the quality would have been higher. But I'm very grateful for what they were able to deliver. So we are going to put apes in the proverbial cryo chambers like Charlton Heston at the beginning of the first one. We are going to do the Tim Burton film as well as the new Andy Serkis films to coincide with the new one. But since that's coming out in May, we got some time to kill, boys. Mm-hmm. And speaking of killing, <laughs> we are going into the... Well, actually, we're not just yet. We have Night Shift to return to, but we have a, a two-film detour to take in between. And this is, again, me having to put this on the schedule and getting a certain amount of resistance from Garrett. Adam was on board. It'll certainly be an incredible set of films to talk about. In case you can't tell, I dropped the, uh, the Alpha Omega bomb myself. We're doing the two Incredibles films to celebrate 20 years since the original. And it's a good quick break to break up Planet of the Apes, Night Shift, and Apes Part Do. I have my thoughts on the first film and the second film for that matter. But Garrett was the one who, when I initially put this on, kind of scoffed. So plead your case. I didn't. I didn't scoff this time because, if you recall, we had a couple weeks that were free, and we struggled over what to exactly put in this time period. To the point where, like, there were things said that probably shouldn't have been said in that chat thread at that time. Until finally, <laughs> you came back and you were like, "All right, 
I found I, I figured it out. Let's just let's do the two Incredibles, and I was fine with it. I resisted just because I resist going to Pixar outside of Toy Story because there's just so much to talk about when it comes to Pixar. I don't know if I want to do an entire Pixar retrospective, but this time I was like, you know what? The, the, this would be the perfect time to discuss it because not only are we, you know, we're still getting superhero films to this day. This was something that came out at a time when they weren't as popular as they ended up being. And then one came out just a few years ago that was right at the apex of superhero films. And so I do think it would it would be an interesting discussion. And, and I do have feelings about the first film. And I do not remember if I've seen the second film or not. I'll, I'll have to uh, go back in my memory banks. For the life of me, I don't remember if I did or didn't. But I am looking forward to going back to it because I might be the skeptic of the series where I don't remember thinking as highly of the first as many people did. It, it has like a 96 or 97% tomato meter for god's sake people love this movie and i remember thinking "Eh, it's fine i'll be interested to go back and talk about whether it still holds true or if my opinions have changed and for the longest time i've mentioned that i found that first incredibles film to be the best fantastic four movie and maybe one of the best superhero movies that that had come out um but that was 20 years ago and times have changed a lot has happened since we're getting a new Fantastic Four, so do I feel the same way about Incredibles? That's that's going to be interesting to see because I'm older, I got a family, and you know I'm a different person than I was back in a long time ago. <laughs> I can math, but 2004. <laughs> I can't wait to have the discussion because I think there's a lot to discuss with both of those films. I cannot believe it's been 20 years since that first fucking film. That blows me away. I echo and could plagiarize almost everything Adam said because, yeah, I do have a family now and things are a lot different than I was 20 years ago. But as Adam mentioned, there have been a plethora of superhero films since The Incredibles that came out at a time where we were not consistently getting great ones. In fact, you could argue that was still the growing pain area of of superhero films. So it would be good to look back with a lot of history since then. You know, we're in a post-Iron Man world and we've had four Avengers films since the Incredibles, five if you want to count Civil War, because I fucking count that as an Avengers movie. Yeah, and to get a sequel 14 years later, after so much hype and and discourse, will they or won't they? Uh, There's a lot to unpack. We'll have a great discussion about those before we come back to Night Shift and start hating Garrett again. (laughs) And then we'll go back to Apes, but yeah, we do have a set of films we have to get through because Night Night Shift is just that part of King's bibliography that it, it seemingly won't end. <laughs> we got another Children of the Corn movie just last year. We'll be getting to those eventually by the end of the year. Yep. So until next time when we talk about The Incredibles, Lawgiver, who knows about the podcast? Perhaps only the dead. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Let me make a last appeal to your reason before we inflict more of this on you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Thank you. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Tell me something, McDonald. Can we make the future what we wish? And if you would be so kind... Please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. Aldo was right. War has come. 
it truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. So many questions I want to ask. And if you enjoyed this review, please head on over to percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast platform of choice to access our Percolated Media archives and hear our reviews of other franchises like Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Pirates of the Caribbean, the films adapted from the published works of Stephen King, Top Gun, the DC Universe featuring Batman, the Superman DC Universe, and so many more. And so, Mandemus, we must be patient and wait. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Do they look like just apes to you? Given the power to alter the future, have we the right to use it? The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is edited by Garrett. I'll abide by that fine. Just hear what I have to say. Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is voice narrated by Adam. You just imagine that he hurt you. For the moment, we should follow their example. The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. In one of the countless billions of galaxies in the universe lies a medium-sized star, and one of its satellites, a green and insignificant planet, is now dead. Funny you mention Ewoks, because this shit looks like Caravan of Courage when we cut to the... Ewok, uh, I mean, I, was, I almost called it the Ewok Society, uh, the Ape Society, <laughs> where it's... Colony of the Chimpanzees or something, because it feels like a feels like a knockoff of the original series. Mm. We're in... <clears throat> I was just... Uh, yeah, and... Oh, I had something and I lost it. Go ahead. Sorry. That's all I thought of. I thought of those marauders every time. Um, what's his name? Algo? Algo? Like, Aldo. Aldo. Every time Aldo...